Hello and welcome to the AK-47 podcast. My name is Kristen Godsey and I am a professor of Russian and East European studies at the University of Pennsylvania and I am in COVID-19 lockdown still where I'm living. The governor of my state has essentially extended our lockdown until June 4th, I believe. So, but of course people are protesting this and there are many people in the United States who are very eager to get out there and restart the economy. Unfortunately, as I'm sure many of you know, this has become quite a political issue in the United States. So it's been very difficult to, to be here because things like wearing a mask suddenly has become a very partisan symbol. So if you, you know, wear a mask, apparently you're some kind of smug liberal. And if you are not wearing a mask, you're a brave Republican or a brave conservative. Anyway, it's a very strange time. I have finally finished teaching uh, my semester at the University of Pennsylvania. The classes ended and I got my grades in and I can say quite definitively that online teaching is very difficult and not very satisfying. So I've been very busy and I have not really been able to focus on podcast, this podcast, as much as I would have liked. And I've also been struggling a little bit to figure out what I should read next. My original plan was actually to dive into a very close reading of The Workers' Opposition, which is a really important document that Kolontai wrote from a kind of anti-Bolshevik left perspective. Kolontai sort of starts as her starts out as a Menshevik. She eventually becomes a Bolshevik. And by the 20s, she really starts to move into what we would think of as more of an anarcho-syndicalist camp. She's very upset with the concentration of power in that more, you know, centralized Bolshevik state. And she wants to devolve power to the workers' councils, to the Soviets, because that's what the Soviets had actually promised. That's what the Bolsheviks had promised at the beginning of the revolution. And after war communism is over and the civil war has been won, she's very disturbed by what she sees as a kind of return to capitalism with the new economic policy, as we've discussed in earlier episodes of this podcast. But given the lockdown situation and the fact that the workers' opposition is a piece that Kolontai kind of wrote for others rather than it really, you know, being specifically about women's rights, it was much more about the structure of the Soviet Union and the future of the Soviet Union after the Bolshevik Revolution, I think I'm going to go back to reading some fiction And the reason is because, you know, now that I'm in lockdown and the semester is over, I've actually had the opportunity to start reading fiction again, which I usually don't ever have a chance to do during the semester. And I'm really interested in Bolshevik fiction. I have read recently Bogdanov's Red Star, and I have a few other books from the kind of pre-Bolshevik era or the Bolshevik era, various Soviet or pre-Soviet writers. And there's this book by Kolontai, which was originally published in 1923. It was published in English translation in 1927 called Red Love. And it's a novel or a novella, I suppose. And it was definitely, again, one of those attempts of Kolontai to try to write a story for working class women where she could discuss the kinds of problems that working class women face, particularly young communist women 
as they tried to forge a new life for themselves in the Soviet Union and sort of dealt with the inheritance of the bourgeois past. So as with most of Colin Tai's fiction, you know, it's very didactic in the sense that she's really not trying to be a great writer. She's not a literary person. She's a politician and she is using fiction as a vehicle to reach the people that she wants to reach, which are working class women who are going to be too tired at the end of the day to read a pamphlet or a political tract and much more inclined to read a novel or a story. And so what I'm going to do today is I'm just going to read you the preface that she wrote in 1927 when the book was published in English. And again, as with so many of Kalantai's fictional writings, the focus of this novel is on how men and women might treat each other differently in the future in a more socialistic society where there is greater equality between not only men and women, but obviously there's a worker state and the bourgeoisie has been abolished and the kind of class hierarchies that used to exist and that made women into commodities, you know, it made women just something to be bought and sold on the marketplace. Once that's gone, what is going to happen to these women? How are they going to forge new lives? And particularly, how are they going to forge new relationships with men, particularly men who may not be fully on board with the Bolshevik socialist plan for women's emancipation? I think one of the thing, one of the themes that is consistent in Colin Tai's early writings is the fact that there's this commitment to women's emancipation and that a lot of men on the left want to pay lip service to the equality of men and women in the home and in the workplace. But when push comes to shove, a lot of men don't want to give up some of the male privilege that they have. Kolontai is hyper aware of this problem. She's obviously experienced it in her own life and her own relationships. And she's also seen it and heard about it in the lives of the working class women that she's writing for. So I do think that this text, again, written and published 1923, is from this moment of tumult in the 20s when social relations are being reformed and rethought and reshaped by the Bolshevik Revolution and its aftermath. So here is Kolontai's own forward to the English edition, which was published, as I said, in 1927. This novel is neither a study in morals nor a picture of the standard of life in Soviet Russia. It is a purely psychological study of sex relations in the post-war period. I have chosen the environment of my own country and made my own people protagonists, for I know them better and could give a more vivid picture of their inner life and characters. Many of the problems presented are not exclusively Soviet Russian. They are worldwide facts, which can be noted in all countries. These silent psychological dramas born of the change in the sexual relations, this evolution, especially in the feelings of women, are well known to the younger generations of Europe. Do we ever judge a man for his conduct in love affairs? Generally, if he does not overstep certain very flexible limits, we say that his life is his own private affair. The character of a man is not evaluated by his conduct in family morals, but by his efficiency in work, by his intellect, his will, and his usefulness to the state and society. 
As long as the majority of women had no direct duties to the state or to society, as long as their whole activity was concentrated within the family limits, civilized nations demanded no other qualities in woman than that she display good morals in sexual and family life. Now, when more than half of the grown-up women citizens in most countries toil and struggle, just as men do, society puts new demands on the woman. Their ability to respond to the social duties of a citizen begins to have more value than their goodness and stainlessness in family morals. Family life is not the unique field of activity for women nowadays. Often enough of her family duties come into bitter conflict with her out-of-home work and her public duties. It is only natural, therefore, that the method of evaluating a woman today is different from that of our grandfathers and grandmothers. Though a woman may, at the present time, attain perfection in the current bourgeois standard of family morals and be esteemed by her own people, she may neither receive the real appreciation of society nor the respect of the state. She will be merely overlooked. On the contrary, a woman may not be spotless from the point of view of current bourgeois sex morals, but if she is an outstanding figure in politics, art, science, etc., one will not even whisper about her behind her back. Were one to put into the balance two women, one with good morals, but who never did any useful work for the country or humanity, and the other, whose family morals are not free from criticism, but who is an efficient public worker, there would be no doubt about the choice. Our criteria in sex morals are always changing. There is never a standstill. There are merely periods in human history when the evolution of morals goes on more rapidly. Other periods, with the general stagnation in all fields of life, when change seems to relax. Only half a century ago, Dumas wrote of a divorcee as a fallen creature, while today France openly discusses the question of equalizing the rights of non-legal mothers with those of legally married women. There remains less and less of the old bourgeois hypocrisy in our way of thinking and judging sex morals. I do hope that this book will aid in combating the old bourgeois hypocrisy in moral values and show once more that we are beginning to respect women, not for her good morals, but for her efficiency, for her ingenuity with respect to her duties towards her class, her country, and humanity as a whole. Alexandra Kolontai, Mexico City, March 10th, 1927. So that's the forward to Red Love. And of course, if you recognize the date and where she is, you know that she is serving as Soviet ambassadress to the, the Mexican state at this point. She's very briefly and uh, quite notoriously in Mexico after having been refused uh, landing in the United States. And she was, she also docked in Cuba. Uh, the, the U.S. didn't let her land because they thought she would be a threat to national security. The Cubans wouldn't let her leave the boat because she was unaccompanied by a man. She was just traveling with her 
uh, friend who was a female friend, female Bulgarian friend. And uh, so she, she gets to Mexico and there's quite an uproar because she takes forever to get off the boat because she wants to look perfect when she descends. And then there are all sorts of accusations that she's trying to create a Bolshevik revolution in, in Mexico. And eventually she does leave Mexico because she has uh, heart problems. And she eventually, as you know, gets sent to Sweden as the Soviet ambassador to Sweden. She's really here trying to convince people around the world that a woman's morality, uh, whether or not she's you know faithful to her husband or whether she has sex, doesn't have sex before marriage or she doesn't have a child out of wedlock, all of these things are far less important when we live in a world where women work and where women have social roles. And you know, obviously, she is talking about herself in many ways. At this point, she's traveling as ambassadress and she is unmarried. And she has had several husbands. She's also a mother. And uh, she is very much a, a free woman, what she would call a sexually emancipated communist woman. And she's seen in many quarters as a threat to bourgeois morality. And yet at the same time, as we can easily say from the year 2020, the world is changing very rapidly. Women's rights are developing. Women are becoming employees and workers and activists and politicians. And, and obviously that has an effect on their sexual relationships with men because as women become more independent and they don't need to get married in order to have, you know, a roof over their heads or a roof over the, the heads of their children, and they can support themselves, the relationships between men and women inevitably are going to change. Uh, so, and obviously that's what this entire, this entire novel, little novel is about. My plan for the next several episodes, probably a lot of them actually, because this is a, a pretty long novel and I haven't yet decided whether my plan is to read the entire thing or if it is to just read selections of it. I, I haven't quite decided. In some ways, I'm inclined to read the entire thing because we're all in quarantine, or at least some of us in the United States are still in quarantine. I know that other countries around the world are, are starting to open up. But I do really like this novel. And I do think that really diving into the relationships between men and women is something that is really important and and in using relationships as a lens through which to view questions of political economy is is really important i i recently read sally rooney's normal people uh, this novel about these young irish um kids you know in school and then at university and 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 how it deals with questions of class and I think that the kind of class critique and, and the critique of late capitalism and the world that these young millennials have inherited, it is told so delicately and so thoughtfully through the relationship between Connell and Marianne. And I think that that book, it's, you know, it's obviously very popular. Uh, it's been on you know the New York Times bestsellers list for quite a while. There was a great BBC uh, co-production. I believe it's streaming on Hulu in the United States. That was made into a television series, and it has really touched a lot of people. A lot of people are very moved by that book for all sorts of reasons. And I think that one of the most interesting things about the book is, of course, the, the sort of class politics. 
particularly within, you know, within Ireland, but then more broadly about what it means to sort of become a member of the kind of educated global elite and how that changes people um, and the emotions associated with class and classism. And anyway, that, you know, really got me thinking about Red Love because I think that when Colin Ty wrote Red Love in 1923, as I said, she was really trying to reach out to working class women who were having problems balancing their new identities as workers and political activists. The main character, Vasilisa, is a Bolshevik and really sees herself as a, as a communist woman. And yet she's in a relationship with a man who really still kind of embraces old bourgeois gender roles. And she struggles between trying to figure out the kind of relationship she wants to have with her husband and the kind of woman that she wants to be in this new kind of communist society, this new socialist society that's being built in the Soviet Union. I think these are really important questions and sometimes fiction is the place to to work them out. So my hope is that I will start posting more regularly from now on, now that I have decided on a text, I think for, for a while there, I was just trying to struggle between whether I should read the, the novel or, or whether I should read The Worker's Opposition, both of, both of which are really long texts. I think I decided for the novel precisely in some ways because I was reading fiction. And, and I think that sometimes fiction can be a little bit more soothing and a little bit more accessible and relatable to ordinary people than just straight up political you know, tracks political agitation, even though I know there's a role for that. I do think that sometimes fiction can be very valuable in, in mobilizing people and agitating them to take action against injustice and the, and the sort of chaos that they see in the world around them. So that's it for me today. Um, hope you're all safe and well. For those of you who are in countries that are opening up, I am very jealous of you. Please, you know, go to a cafe and and have a coffee or, or drink a glass of wine for me. And thank you so much, as always, for listening and keep up the good fight.